Many years ago, we were living in the city of Miami, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, I was there a couple weeks ago, and uh, our church was just really hopping at the time. We used to have around 400 people come to our Friday night service. Our weekend attendance was around 1,500 different people came. And it was just, God was just doing an amazing thing. And one Sunday, and I was on the pastoral staff, and uh, so one, of, one Sunday morning this lady came in who we knew very, very well, who was a faithful member of our church, and, but she looked like she'd been hit by a truck. Not a big truck, but still, a truck. And um, we knew her, and then behind her came, she was kind of dragging her two little boys, and they didn't look a whole lot better, and we're going, hey, what's going on, you know? And we eventually found out that just as she left the house and she got partway to church in her old wreck of a car, it had broke down. Now, it's hot in Miami, and she lived quite a few miles from the church, and she was to be on the worship team that day, and she was also to sing a, a song, a special song. We don't do that anymore. How many remember when you used to go to church and people used to sing a song to you? And then you clap, politely. And she was to sing this song, and she was to be on the worship team that day, and, but her car broke down. And so she just gets the kids out of the car, and she just starts walking. And she just walks to church. Now, most people would have said, hey, you know, call your husband or something and have him come pick you up or somehow get home and, you know, you call it a day. But not, not, not Mia. Mia was her name. Asian lady. Never disoriented. Okay. So... She comes to church, but nobody knows what's happened. I didn't know what happened. I didn't know until a week or so later what had really happened, why she looked the way she did. I, I don't generally greet women, women who arrive at church, regardless of their condition. You look like you've been hit by a truck, ma'am. How are you? I, I don't do that. And I took some courses in college, and they taught us that. So she just takes her place and does her thing, and nobody really knows what happened. But it kind of got out. And at that time, you got to understand, she was just faithful, just faithful. Her husband, by the way, was a knucklehead, um, David. And he was one of the Vietnamese boat people. How many can remember the Vietnamese boat people? How many are from America? Okay, so the Vietnamese boat people. You remember the Vietnamese boat people? Okay, so in case you don't know, in the late 1970s, 78, 79, 80, there was this huge group of people who left Vietnam on anything they could find, rafts, boats, inner tubes, whatever, and they just set out on the ocean and they tried to escape Vietnam. And many of them died in their attempt, but many were picked up by ships and brought to refugee camps in Hong Kong and other places. And uh, David was one of those refugees from Vietnam. And he was actually on a raft with a lady who, who at that, he had to deliver the lady's baby. And uh, there was just all kinds of, of drama until they get picked up by an international ship and he became a, a refugee in Hong Kong. And there was other refugee places, some in the United States. But he came to America, and he met Mia, and they ended up getting married and, and, and producing these offspring. But David, David was just a, he was, he, he wasn't stupid, and he wasn't, and he wasn't lazy. He was a very, very hard worker, worked in the Chinese food industry and restaurants, and, and he knew all these different languages so he could communicate, and, and, and he could also be the translator for all the different languages in the kitchen and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, he worked 70, 80 hours a week, but he was a knucklehead, and he would, you know, just do kind of crazy things, and he wasn't a great father, and he wasn't a great husband. And, you know, I remember one time he, he got caught for drunk driving, and that cost the family thousands and thousands of dollars, and, of course, he had to be driven everywhere for a long period of time. And, and you know, he just wasn't a, a great guy. But Mia was serving the Lord, and Mia was, she was red hot for Jesus, and, and she was faithful. And, 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 and there was a brand-new car company, brand-new car company in America. And um, 
And nobody heard too much about this car company, but it was, a, it was just brand new in America. And it got around the church that, that Mia's car had broke down. And, and not only that, but there was a man who attended the church who wasn't really serving the Lord, but he had, some, he had some means, he had some wealth, and he heard about Mia dragging her kids to church that morning. And so he felt like he should do something, and I believe the Lord was in it, because that very next week, within three or four days, he had bought a Kia for Mia. A Kia for Mia. And it became this kind of a legendary story of the church of how God provided for this faithful lady who didn't pick up her kids and walk back home, who picked up her kids and walked to church. Here's the question I have for you. If Mia had not stuck to the grind, would she have benefited from the highlight reel? If she had not stuck to the grind, would she have benefited from the highlight reel? Today we're talking to you about being committed to the grind. Being committed to the grind. We're talking about the grind and the highlight reel. Everybody wants to be on the highlight reel. Everybody wants to score the winning goal, the touchdown, the, the basketball, the, the, the score in hockey. That's the only sport in the last three that I mentioned that I know anything about is hockey. But in order to get to the highlight reel, you have to find yourself in the grind faithfully. The one who gets on the ESPN's sports center where they show the highlights of last night's games is not the guy who sloughed off and who missed half the practices because he slept through them. It's the guy who came early to the practice, stayed all for the practice, stayed late for the practice, and just shot basket after basket after basket after basket after basket. So when he was in the actual arena, on the game day, he could actually score that unusual goal. Everybody wants to be on the highlight reel and experience the thrills and the chills of being recognized for success, but do we understand what goes into getting there? The facts are, I could get the ball in the basket. I just choose not to. I didn't spend the time in the grind not to mention the fact that there's not a midget league. But I didn't spend the time in the grind. I didn't spend the time doing what I had to do. I didn't spend the time going to the rink at 4 o'clock in the morning, having my parents get up and, and take me there and, and with some coach and tripping and falling all over myself on the ice and, and eventually learning some of the rudimentary skills of, of hockey and then spending hours and hours and hours like one of my nephews did. And, 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 and not just hours and hours, I mean days and weeks and months trying to hone his skills as a hockey player. You see, getting on the highlight reel in business, in sports, in the family, in leadership, is, is based on one thing. It's the time you spend in the grind. You see, sometimes it takes a lifetime for somebody just to have one shot at being on ESPN's highlight reel. Everybody wants to be on the highlight reel and experience those thrills and chills, but again, their understanding of how to get there seems so limited. When you make room for God in the grind, I will make room for you, we just sang. We make room to get on the highlight reel. I'm going to show you a picture of a Charles Dickens type character. He's going to come here in a minute. There he is. Who do you think that is? Okay, buddy. You want to step outside? I know I'm not cool, but I mean, you know, come on. No. Actually, you're, they said that in the first service, too. Actually, I was always much taller than that one. That was my father. If you could see, I wish I'd been able to, I don't know why I didn't, but I, I didn't show you the actual pictures, picture of his shoes that he had on. If, if they were shoes in today's context, they would have been with duct tape. It was absolute poverty the way he was raised. His father died when he was 11 years old, and this picture was taken just around that time. 
He said he never went to see his father in the hospital. He wasn't, it was back in the time when you kind of, everything was restricted access to the hospital. He never saw just his mother come home and said, your father's gone. They lived in poverty before the father passed. They lived in abject poverty after the father passed. He invited a boy home one day for, for, for a meal after this time. He invited this boy home and the boy came and, and there was only two rooms. They only had two rooms. One was a bedroom and one was kind of the kitchen area and the living area all in one. And there was an outhouse. And his mother took him in the other room and said, what are you doing inviting this boy home for lunch? We only have one egg left. He says literally, and he says this is not figuratively speaking, this is not you know, kind of hyperbole in reverse, but he said literally if it wasn't for the Salvation Army, their family would have starved to death because they were able to keep going by the beneficence of the Salvation Army. He says, we literally terrorized our community. We said, we're just little hellions. My mother had nine children. She couldn't, couldn't control them when dad was around, let alone when dad wasn't around. And they had nine kids. One day they found a, a shack that was unlocked next to the railway. It was a little railway shack, not very big. But inside that shack, he gathered up all these items that he, he didn't know what they were, but they looked like whistles. They looked like little things you could put under your, your, your bottom lip and blow into them, and they made a whistling sound. And so they went all over the neighborhood, and, and they, they handed out these whistles to all the kids, and they were, oh, it was a great time, and they were having fun. And his sister got one, and in a two-room house with a little girl blowing into a whistle and mom trying to keep the house together and all the kids together, she got frustrated and she grabbed that whistle, not realizing it was a blasting cap that they stole, and threw it into the stove, and the stove exploded and maimed my Aunt Jean. And she lost an eye that day, and she lost one hand. And I, as a child, remember Aunt Jean so well. Because she liked me. But she didn't have one hand. I believe it was her, I, I said earlier it was her left, her right, but I think it was her left hand she lost. And I interviewed my dad a few years ago before he passed on camera. And a man in his early 80s, he was 83, 84 years old at the time. And tears came to his eyes when he talked about his responsibility in giving her that blasting cap how it still bothered them to this day. And my Aunt Jean had passed away 25, 30 years before that unexpectedly. The police had to go all over town after the fire department came to my, my, the little shack in which they lived and helped them with the fire. And the police had to go all over town trying to find these blasting caps so there'd be no... He said, we terrorized that place. Then they, as a family, they moved from northern New Brunswick down to southern New Brunswick, and they moved to a city called St. John, the city in which I was born. And in that city, my father was a very young, uh, middle, kind of a younger teenager, and then was 15, 16 years old, and he became basically a drunkard. And, uh, but he was the second youngest person during World War II to be um, a, a, a sailor for the um, Canadian government in World War II, his second youngest. Of course, he had to lie um, about his age, and his sister did that for him and wrote a letter. And he was able to join the Merchant Marines and begin traveling all over the world. And of course, being in the Merchant Marines and traveling all over the world meant that he became a drunkard. And he just became an absolute drunk. And uh, he wasn't irre an irresponsible drunk. In fact, he sent money home on a regular basis to his mother. Wherever he was in the world, uh, it was worked out that his mother would be taken care of, and she was so grateful. But he, he had told crazy stories about being in, for instance, in South Africa. And, and uh, I, that was back in the day when, when the, 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 the tableware, it would all have the, uh, the emblems of, of, and the logos and, and the name of the hotel on the, on the plates and on the silverware, and all of, all, all of that. So they would just go from restaurant to restaurant and take one plate and one set of silverware, and then they'd go to, and, and they were stuffing it in bags and everything, and, and they were doing this, and finally one restaurateur figured it out that you know, these guys weren't there to buy food, they were there to steal their, their cutlery and things, and so they called the police, and literally the police were chasing them, running down the street, and my father and his colleagues were running down ahead of the police, and they finally got to the ship, and when they, when they realized that they were sailors, they just warned them after they took their stuff back from them and it was all crashing against each other and getting broken and everything and just warned them get on the ship and don't you dare get off but they didn't want an international incident so they didn't bother arresting them my father was a racist he was a he was just just an angry uh, racist and he he 
did not like anybody that was non-Caucasian, and, and, and he was just, that was the way he was, but he traveled all the world, and now in his late teens, he's 18 or 19, 19 years old, and he gets to the city of Vancouver, British Columbia, and he'd been all over the world by this time, and now on the other side of Canada, like four or 5,000 miles, 4,000 miles away from where we started in St. John, New Brunswick, and um, it's just like in the ports today in the West Coast, there was all these ships sit, sit, sit off the coast just sitting there because the stevedores were on strike. The ones who unload the ships were on strike. And so my father uh, is laid off by the captain. And the captain lays off all the, 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 the crew. And so they were just basically put out on the streets of the city of Vancouver and said, you know, uh, you know see, us, see you when the strike's settled. And so my father's wandering the streets in the, of the city of Vancouver, British Columbia, and he comes to um, a, a sign, and he sees a church. It's a brethren church. And the sign says, Gospel sing tonight, and he notes that, and he notes the time, and, because he has nowhere to go, and he's hoping for a, a warm place, and maybe he can meet some people. He goes to the Gospel sing, and it's the first time he ever heard the Gospel of Jesus Christ that how Jesus Christ can save you and set you free, and he can forgive you of your sins, and you don't have to be a racist, and you don't have to be a drunkard, and you don't have to be an angry, foul-mouthed individual, that Jesus can set you free. He can forgive you of your sins. You can know that your sins are forgiven. He can be your Savior and your Lord. And he hears that for the first time that night, and that night he responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's instantly set free from alcohol that evening. He is set free by the power of God. God that evening, and his life is changed that evening. Never once did he ever go back to alcohol after that evening. Jesus set him free. Jesus set him free. Well, of course, it was wonderful, but what's he to do then? He's still a strike-bound sailor. But the wonderful brethren people knew of his situation. They talked to him afterward. They invited them to him to their home. Then they gave him a job. First day in the job, he crashed one of their trucks. A wonderful employee. And um, he, he, he stays with them for several months. And, and they disciple him, and they love on him. And then eventually the strike is settled. He ends up actually going on a different ship. But they gave him a Bible. He gets on that ship. Him and the, him and the Bible, that's all there was in the relationship. There's no other believers on the ship. And he learned how to pray. He learned how to say grace before meals. That he did on the ship in front of all those men. He was called Holy Joe and Holy Roller and all kinds of things. And, um, and, and they made all kinds of fun of him. But he just stayed in serving Jesus. He knew enough to read the Bible every day. He knew enough to pray in rudimentary prayers. Several months later, he gets off the ship. And what happens? God uses uh, that experience in the ship to strengthen him. And he began to live what I call the grind. What I call the grind. Eventually, he met my mother, and uh, they had um, three offspring. They had th those two lunatics, my older brothers, and then they had me, and the sunshine began to shine on his life again. <laughs> and and uh, they just began to live the grind. I'll show you another picture of this couple, and it's coming. There it is. That was six years ago on October the 3rd, six years ago on October the 3rd, on what was their 62nd wedding anniversary, and it was 45, uh, October, yeah, 45 days before he went into the presence of Jesus. My father had a grade 7 education, and um, he did very well. He was a great, great salesperson. He sold he used to ask him, you know, people asked him, what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm a popsicle pusher. What he meant is he sold milk and dairy products all of his life. He sold popsicles. My mother said he'd drive 40 miles and sell somebody a melted popsicle. That's just the way he was. And he loved to sell. And this was 45 days before he went to be in the presence of the Lord. I would say, incidentally, he died on a Friday. On the Saturday before, he, on the Sunday before he died, he was in church. And his life, life was just leaving. And this is the last time they actually went out to eat uh, before he passed. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer on June 13th. He died on November 13th. On November 18th, I, six years ago, I preached his funeral. November 19th, he would have been 87 years old. But what did I see in these two old people? What did I see in their lives? 
What did I see? I saw consistency. I saw the grind. I saw living for Jesus every day. I saw my parents open the Bible and pray on a daily basis. I saw them support their pastor and support their church. I, I, I call home when I, when I moved to the United States and, and, we, and we did our you know, living here and I'd call home from my office someday on a Tuesday. I'd forget it was a Tuesday and the phone would ring and ring and ring and I'd call my brother and say, what's wrong with mom and dad? And they, they said, don't forget, it's Tuesday. Mama's always at prayer and she's 80-some years old. She's always at prayer at the church. Big storm hits, and I'm, you know, I can watch and see that the weather, what the weather's like. And, and so a big storm hits, and I call them up, and I say, hey, guys, uh, what's going on? And they say, well, we're getting ready for church. I said, well, there's a big storm. Well, they haven't canceled church yet. And they'd get in their little car, their little Chevy Cruze. That's the same car I drive. We're just small people. We only need a small car. And so we get in our little Chevy Cruze and we drive to, he says, we can, we can get there. If, you, if we can't, your mother will have to push the car. And she'd say, oh, Leonard, shut your mouth. <laughs> and so they would, you know, slip slide all over the place, six or eight inches of snow in the road and the plows haven't gone by yet. And so he'd get to church and there'd be about 20 or 25% of the normal crowd. But the, but the young people wouldn't show up and the old geezers are there. Because I watched them live the grind. I watched them raise their children in such a way as, as, as that we just, and it, this is hard to say because people say, oh, yeah, 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 but, you know, yeah, but there was a, no. I, you, you, you don't, you can't, most people can't relate to this. I just want to tell you something. We never miss church. Now, you go, come on, yeah, yeah. Listen, the average evangelical in the United States right now attends church 28 weeks a year. When daddy got saved, he gave his life to Jesus. They went to church back then six and seven times a week. Usually Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, and Friday. There was a prayer meeting, there was a youth meeting, there was, I don't know what they were doing in church. And, but there was, and, then, and then Sunday came, there was Sunday morning, there was Sunday afternoon, Sunday school, there was Sunday evening service. Easily six, seven times a week. And he just began that, and of course that was his discipleship process, and he learned to serve God. Somebody came and tried to tell him, sell my dad life insurance one time, and they lived in the expectation that Jesus was going to come back at any time, the imminent return of Jesus Christ. They talked about it all the time. And they came and said to my father, you need to get some life insurance, you know, you need some life insurance. And he said, I don't need your life insurance, I've got the blessed assurance, Jesus is coming again. See, that's, that's what they live like. And they lived in the grind of just day in, day out, serving Jesus. The idea that we were going to miss church, that never occurred to me. I can literally tell you there were years of my life where I never missed, in succession, I never missed one Sunday. We didn't go to church 52 weeks a year. We went to church 53 weeks of the year. I don't know how we did it, but we did. It's just the way it was. We never woke up on a Sunday morning and said, you know what, I wonder if we're going to church. I'm going to get my brothers and go, you know what, I wonder if we're going to church. Don't tell mom and dad. Maybe they'll sleep in. Maybe... There was no chance of that. Just wasn't any chance of it. And so that's the way we were raised. We were, my, my parents loved their pastor. They loved, they loved their church. They didn't always agree with everything, but they kept their mouth shut and they just kept serving and let, let the Lord do their work. And if we said anything about the leadership or anything about the pastor, man, ooh, baby, we didn't eat roast pastor every Sunday for lunch. Nothing was said in our home about the preacher other than good things. And so that's the way we were raised, and we live with parents who live the grind. I wonder why it's important now to note that, that their three children and their children's children are serving the Lord today. Because we had parents who lived the grind, who did what it took to get us to where we are going. Then we turn to this first chapter and the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and you'll hear a lot about this in the next two weeks, next two weeks, the next few weeks, rather. You'll hear a lot about this. You'll hear about the birth of Jesus Christ, and, and we're going to celebrate this, but there's a couple of interesting little features in here you may not have noticed. Now, in, this in these two chapters, there is a total of 134 verses in these two chapters, Luke 1 and Luke 2. Luke 1 has 80 verses, 
but it has an introductory of four, so that's down to 76 verses uh, of the story. And Luke 2 has 52 verses. 52 verses. I'm going to point out four verses that are kind of unique. You see, Luke 1 and 2 are the highlight reels. They are the highlight reels of some, in, of some people we know a lot about because of what it describes here. First of all, we know that there's two people by the name of Zechariah and Elizabeth. I referenced them last week. Zechariah, of course, and Elizabeth were an older couple, well beyond childbearing years, hoped to have children, absolutely disgraced not to have them, and they hoped to have children, but, but they couldn't have children, and so they just were kind of resigned to the fact that they were not going to have children, and they get chosen for a specific time at the very right time. It says in Galatians 4 and 4 that the Son of Man was brought forth on the very right time, and so at the very right time, they're selected by lottery, and they are chosen to come from their village as Levites and to minister in the temple. And so it was their time to minister, just at the very right time. They get there, and Zechariah and Elizabeth, they make their way to Jerusalem. He works in the temple for the whole week, And while he's in the temple that whole week, while he has this one-week assignment, an angel appears to him. And an angel appears to him and says, you're going to have a baby. And of course, we know the baby to be Zechariah and Elizabeth's baby to be John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is born, and we point out last week that John the Baptist was... uh, was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. We know that Simeon filled with the Holy Spirit. We know that Elizabeth gets filled with the Holy Spirit when she meets Mary. Oh, speaking of Mary, doesn't Mary have some angelic visitations as well? Go back and read how Joseph, Mary's husband, has an angelic visitation because he had to deal with the fact that his young teenage uh, girl uh, with to whom he was not just engaged, but betrothed, which is much more serious than even being engaged, she was pregnant, and yeah, by Holy Spirit, right. And so, so, but the angel appears to him and says, listen, you better believe her, she's really, I mean, this is a highlight real experience. This is not, this is not normal. This is not what everybody was having all the time in Jesus' day. This was an unusual thing. And so you have all these experiences, and then you have eventually, oh, by the way, then you have these choirs coming and singing angelic choirs. You have uh, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to all men. You have uh, shepherds coming after, after hearing the choirs sing and worshiping. You have in, in in Matthew, you have some magi coming, very important officials coming from another country and giving, giving them gifts to the baby Jesus. You have this huge highlight experience, these, 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 these um, uh, highlight real experiences, these ESPN moments in their life. But that's not how they lived every day. Let's take a look at the first scripture. Listen to what the first scripture says. And the child grew, it says in Luke 1 and 80, 80, the last verse of the first chapter, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly in Israel. About whom is it speaking? John the Baptist. We're 80 verses in, and we get this one little verse that says, beyond him being born miraculously, beyond his parents having these wonderful signs and all of this, and John going dumb, and then eventually being able to speak, you have this one sentence that describes 30 years of his life. We have the highlight reel of the initial conception and birth of John the Baptist over a nine-month period, but then we have this, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly in Israel. What's interesting is you don't see the other 30 years. You don't see the ignominy. You don't see the, the, the quiet just living their life. Do you realize that, that this only child to Elizabeth and Zechariah was probably doted on, was probably, but you know what? I bet you there were some times they had to whoop them. Now, I know we're not allowed to say that anymore. We're supposed to say they had to reason with the with the child, and suggest to him that he might want to devise another way to bring equity to his situation. That's all code for they had to whoop him. Do you know that they probably had to do something? And John the Baptist was a little bit weird. Okay, he wasn't cool either. Did you see how they described the clothes he wore? He wore camel hair and this kind of a goofy belt, and he ate locusts. My little grandson, he was sitting by his mother a few months ago, and he's only one and a half at the time, and he was sitting beside his mother, and 
they were just cuddling and just so nice and oh, mother, son. And then he puts his hands in his mouth, he takes out a stink bug and puts it on her. That's where I store all our stink bugs as well. Thirty years. Thirty years of the grind. Thirty years of getting to church. Thirty years of prayer and Bible reading. Thirty years of, of paying your tithes and honoring God with your income. Thirty years of doing the right thing. Thirty years of, of, of living a life. And then the parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth, God only knows if they were alive at this time or not. But eventually someone sees their son preaching in the wilderness, and we know his ministry only lasted less than a year until he was beheaded. Would there be a John the Baptist if there wasn't a Zachariah and Elizabeth living the grind? Let's go to the next scripture. Next scripture is from Luke chapter 2 and verse number 40 and says, And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Luke 2 and 40. Who the, who, to whom is it referencing? It's Jesus. They're referencing Jesus, and they're referencing a period in Jesus' life after this miraculous birth. They're referencing Jesus at about 12 years old. He's 12 years old, and you're saying... The, the, the hypostatic union, the, the all God and all man and one being. You mean nothing big happened in those 12 years? You can imagine being Jesus' brother or sister. Sitting with your psychiatrist. My brother thinks he's perfect. We're just so sick of him. It's always Jesus this, Jesus that. And, you know, we're playing tag and he immediately knows where we are. He laid his hands on one of my dolls the other day, and the doll stood up. No, all you get is this. And Jesus grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Do you see what's happening here? There's years go by, and there's nothing noteworthy. It's just the grind of a two parents raising their children, Joseph and Mary, raising their children to, to live a life worthy of the kingdom. And you with the final verse of Scripture from Luke chapter 2 and 52, Luke 2 and 52, it says this. It's the next Scripture there, gentlemen. There it is. I'm sorry, we'll do Luke 2 and 51 first. And then he went down, and, he went down to Nazareth and with them, and he was obedient to them, but his mother, this is when he was 12 years old, what was this talking about? It was talking about when he got left in the temple, and he's reasoning, and he's, and he's talking to the temple leaders, the priests. He's having this conversation with them, and they're chatting back and forth, right? And, and, and it's this amazing thing, and so what happens? He, he, and, and he went down to Nazareth after he was done, after his mother rebuked him, and he was obedient to his parents, and his mother treasured these things in her heart, and the next verse says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. What does this represent? 18 years. 18 years. We don't hear anything about Jesus. Now, we know there's all kinds of apocryphal writings, etc., but there's 18 years goes by of the grind, of just getting the kids ready for church, of just, of just keep, trying to keep them clothed, trying to keep the, the kids from scrapping with one another and gouging each other's eyes out, trying to, trying to do whatever we have to do to raise our family in such a way as they'll be, they'll be worthy of the kingdom of God. And what we've got is a whole lot of grind for a very little highlight reel. But here's what we know. You'll never get to the highlight reel unless you've been on the grind. You see, the reason why you haven't seen me on ESPN is because I've never spent the discipline and the time to shoot the tens of thousands. And by the way, someone encouraged me in first service. They said there was a player who was five foot five in the NBA at one time. So stop mocking. I might get there yet. But I haven't spent the time of the, of, that it takes to spend just hours and hours in gymnasium doing, 
drills after drill after drill. The reason I'm not on the highlight reel for football, and I don't know anything about football, but I think it's something to do with a lot of fat men wearing tight clothing and, um, and, and, and bumping into each other. Uh, the reason I haven't spent a lot of time on the highlight reel for hockey is because I didn't do what my brothers did with, with my nephew and, and, and got him to the rink all the time and, and all of that, and he became a very, very good hockey player. You see, the reason I'm not on the highlight reel is because I didn't put myself through the grind. If you're going to get on the grind, if you're going to be on the highlight reel of heaven, you're going to have to go through the grind. And it may be years and years before you see some of the things that you want to see, but I'm here to tell you that the people who do see some of the things they want to see, it's because they've been faithful. They've been, they've been focused. They've put their lives on the line and said, we'll do whatever we have to do to make it happen. Here's what my question is. What if Mary had decided when she was 15 years old, about two weeks before the angel comes to visit her? What if Mary had said, you know what, I think I'm going to start chasing boys. I haven't had a date. I haven't had anybody give me any attention. I don't know what's going on here. So I think I'm going to take matters in my own hands. And by the way, what is all this going to synagogue and temple and doing all this religious stuff? What's it really had, what's it had any effect on me? How, how has it really helped me? How has it helped me be um, a better person? You know what, I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to go and find myself a man. Would we be talking about Mother Mary today? Would we be talking about Mary, this, 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 this wonderful woman of history who changed the destiny of, of millions of people, who, who her life actually has, has caused history to divide itself? Hey, would we be talking about Mary? No, we might be talking about St. Edna today. Or Bertha. You can imagine the Beatles singing, Sweet Mother Bertha, come and comfort me, or whatever they sang. We wouldn't be talking about Mary. What if, what if, what if our friends Zachariah and Elizabeth had said, you know what? We've been to the temple a few times, and yeah, we just won the lottery, but let's, let's just send them a note, or let's email them, text them, and tell them we can't come. And by the way, we're kind of ticked off at God. You see, we could, we're wallowing in self-pity. We're childless, and we, God obviously doesn't care about us. You know what? There are millions of people today who are not in God's house somewhere in America. They're not in church. They're not fellowshipping with other believers. Why are they not? Because they somehow are disappointed with God. Somehow God has ripped them off. God has failed them. I want to tell you something. God has never ripped me off. He's never failed me. He will never fail me. And I'm not going to let my disappointments define God. I'm going to let God be defined by his goodness and his greatness. And I choose to trust him even when I can't understand him. I'll live in the tension of ambiguity, and I'll say, my God reigns. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one I'm serving. It's not about Jowdry. It's about Jesus. And so, what if Zachariah and Elizabeth had a wallowed in self-pity? Oh, what about Simeon? If he had stayed home that day, we didn't talk about Simeon too much, but Simeon, we mentioned him last week. Simeon, of course, got to hold the baby Jesus and was revealed to him by the Spirit that he wouldn't die until he had beheld the Messiah himself. But what if, what if Simeon had to decide he would stay home and watch football, have a few beers, instead of his usual place in the temple? What if he had just decided the grind wasn't worth it? What about Anna, who spent probably 62 years in the temple? She had been seven, married for seven years, and then her husband died. She was probably married when she was six, 15, so 22 years old. She loses her husband. She's in the temple until she's 84, so probably around 62 years she is in the temple. What if, what if Anna had said, you know what? It's time for me to get into a retirement community because I need to play me some bingo. But she didn't. She was found where she needed to be. And because of it, shuffleboard couldn't match. Let me show you a picture of another lady. I was 17 and she was 16. She's in Colorado at that time. We had just started dating and she went with her a bunch of youth leaders to Colorado with the Nazarene Church. And she was at this big youth conference and that was a picture. And... I remember just 
witnessing the story of her life, my wife's life. My wife was one of 17 children born to her mother. She was the 15th one born. Uh, three of the children died. My wife wasn't one of those. And um, um, so really in, in the line, there was, she was the 12th of 15 or 12th of 14 rather, or the 17, 15th of 17, whatever way you want to look at it. They lived in abject poverty, as you would expect. Um, it appears that her parents only did one thing well. And uh, they were just, it was poverty beyond poverty. But not just poverty, it was dysfunction beyond dysfunction. Some of the fights would last literally for a week, and they would go day and night for a week. You can imagine what that does to the psyche of a child. This violence, dysfunction, poverty. But my wife did a few things right. She would start out walking to church. It was just two or three miles away, and she'd get picked up. She just decided she was going to serve Jesus. She had a little time of teenage kind of rebellion, but it wasn't that big of a deal. And she decided she was going to serve Jesus. When I met her, I was 17, she was 16, and, and we were walking along this snow-covered road one night. It was, I believe it was in February, and I remember her telling me, and there was big high snow banks, and, and it was that kind of idyllic kind of snowy situation. And I remember her telling me that she felt like God was calling her into ministry, and I was telling her, I think God's calling me into ministry too. I mean... What can stop us, right? Hey, baby. I mean, it's a snowy night, and we're called in the ministry. Come on. And I was a knucklehead. But we married three years later, and we were both 20 years old. I was almost 21, and, and uh, I wasn't a good husband. Now, if she was here, she'd say, oh, sweetheart, don't say that. I, want, I, I never took another man's wife or never took somebody else. But there were so many things I did that were dumb and disrespectful, stupid, idiotic. You can stop me anytime, by the way. It just, it's, it's, it's time for you to say, no, no, that can't be. But I watched my wife just go through the grind. When she should have thrown me out, when she should have walked out. The times that I broke my heart, I said things to her that you shouldn't say to an animal, let alone your wife. What did she do? She just kept with the grind. Just kept serving Jesus. When her husband, the preacher, was really just a hypocrite, she just kept raising our kids and teaching them memory verses getting up and praying with them. Remember she said to our 20-year-old son one time who was in ministry with me at the time, Nathan, turn off the TV, come upstairs, go to bed and read your Bible. I said, dear, he's 20 years old. He's been through Bible college. I think he can handle this. Oh, no, she just, it's the grind, baby. Just faithfully served me. There was times when she brought me a plate of food that she had cooked. She should have thrown it at me. But she served her husband. I'm not saying you have to mimic everything my wife did. She probably should have done a couple of crazy things. But I watched her raise our children in the grind. Are you listening to me? Do you understand what it costs to get yourself on the highlight reel? Can I give you a little intimate moment? It actually happened last night. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Okay, he may be old, he may have a few gray hair, but hey. <laughs> Last night we were watching a TV show and she, we were laying in bed and she put her arm over on my arm, her hand over on my arm. 
She said, I want you to know, I like you more than I've ever liked you before. The reason why our marriage is together is because my wife paid the price to live in the grind. And that moment last night was a highlight reel for me. What am I saying to you folks? I'm saying, understand this. If we're going to get to where we're going to go, and we want to have a few highlight real moves, I'm here to tell you, I've had my body healed. I'm here to tell you, I've had God come. Oh, let me tell you about the time when, when we, we, we had two children, and the third one wasn't yet here, and, and so I, can kind of, I know where we lived, and, and, and we lived in this trailer basically out in the woods, and it was cold, and it was in the wintertime, and, and I was discouraged, and I was down, and I would get, I would get into these depressions. And, and, you know, and I told you, we never miss church. I never miss church, but one day I said to her on a Sunday, morning I'm not going that's it I'm not going and she said okay and she goes around busying herself getting the kids ready and getting breakfast and she comes in and says uh, come on uh, you know and, and, and I said I just said I'm not going I'm not going and I felt this presence I'm not very sensitive and my back was to the door, and my back was to her, and to the hallway. And, but I felt this presence standing there. Someone was still in the room with me. And I heard a voice. It was a familiar voice. She said, look, you big lug. You get your little fat body out of that bed. And you get yourself ready for church, because I'm not going alone. And you've got two kids. Now, I'm still a little ticked off about the fat body one. And it was only 35 years ago. I'm really praying about forgiving her. But that day, I, I got up. I went to church. And Jesus met me. Jesus met me in an amazing way. And I wouldn't have had the highlight reel experience unless I'd gone through the grind. John Kilpatrick of the Brownsville Revival talks about the highlight real experiences of his life, and he said, I almost missed every one of them. Do you realize that on Father's Day 1995, when the Brownsville Revival started, that literally swept the world and impacted the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the world? There's places still being affected by the Brownsville Revival today, even after all this time. Do you realize that he says, I almost didn't go that day. His mother had passed away, the one he idolized. He was in a depression. He just said, you know what, I've got a guest speaker. Somebody else can take care of it. I just need a day to rest. But he pilled himself up by the bootstraps he went and God came to Brownsville Assembly of God that day and sent a revival that reverberated around the world. I say friends let's stick to the grind. Let's stick to the disciplines. Let's stick to who we know God is and let's stop uh, kind of model coddling ourselves and saying oh well I'll get around to it when I get around to it. No friends we're committed to the grind. Why? Because I expect to see some highlight real experiences yet to come in my life. I expect to see God pour out his spirit in powerful ways and I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to press in and I'm going to believe him for a mighty move of his spirit and in the meantime I'm just going to keep on serving him amen I'm going to keep on serving him and so that's what we expect God to do here's the deal I'm going to keep on praying I'm going to keep on reading my Bible I'm going to keep on the disciplines Keep on giving and tithing and Christian fellowship and witnessing and silence and meditation and doing God's will and living a holy life. I'm going to keep on forgiving people when I would rather not forgive them. Here's the last quotation we want to put on the screen for you. Being committed to the grind means being consistently determined to be where you need to be, doing or not doing what you need to be doing or not doing when you need to be doing it for the long haul. You are convinced that God will take care of the highlight reel, providing you with an exceptional experience of His grace, mercy, and power. You see, you don't get the highlight reel experiences unless you go through the grind. 
So I started out talking about Mia and the Kia. But what you may not remember, or what you may not know, rather, because I've not told you, is remember last week we prayed for who? Larry? Larry's the little boy she drugged behind her, who's been four months in a hospital bed. Last Yesterday they intubated him again for I don't know how many times now. And I sent Mia a text last night. And I said, Mia, if you know how to do anything, you know how to persevere. You know how to pray. You know how to call on God. There was a little bit of a text discussion back and forth. And one of the things I said is, Mia, I can't tell you anything you don't already know. You know God. You forgot more about God than I'll know. But Mia, you know how to do one thing, and you know how to do it well. She, she's, she's, this has been four months. There, she lives in California. She's in Charleston, South Carolina with her son. She said to me, I've lost David. That was her first husband. Remember the knucklehead David? Well, he got saved. He got red hot for Jesus. One day he gets sick at work, and three days later he's dead. And she said, I've lost my husband, my first husband, when the boys were in their late teens, she said, I can't lose my son when his children, his boys, are three and seven years old. But what was I saying to Mia? I didn't use these words. But I said, Mia, stay on the grind. And you'll see the highlight reel one day. Your boys are going to serve God. God's going to raise them up from a bed of affliction. But you'll never see the highlight reel if you give up in discouragement. Beloved brothers and sisters, many of you are struggling with things in this room that are too big for you to handle, and you're wondering, what's the key? How do I get through this? The key is you just keep doing what God's called you to do, and you keep saying, Jesus, I trust you that you're going to take care of this and I'm not going to get discouraged. It's amazing to me that John the Baptist, after such a short period of time in ministry, after being raised by such wonderful parents, he loses faith. And he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, should we expect somebody else or are you the one? He's having a crisis of faith in prison. I don't condemn people to have crises of faith. I don't condemn them. John the Baptist had one. And Jesus said he was the last and the greatest prophet. And yet... He has a crisis of faith. And Jesus says this, go back and tell them you've seen the highlight reel, that the sick are being healed, the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the the lame are walking, the kingdom is being preached. Go back and tell them what's on the highlight reel. So why? He stays with the grind. And he serves him. 